Welcome to Michael Stone's podcast. This free podcast is made possible through gifts by people like you. Please consider making a donation through the donate button on the website to help us offer unique audio, video, and text-based teachings on the internet and to grow this community library. Michael's teaching bridges the gap between inner healing and social change by synthesizing traditional spiritual teachings with the insights of the West. To learn about Michael's international retreats and workshops, please visit michaelstoneteaching.com. Thank you for your support. Monks, Mara gains entry. Mara gains a footing in whoever does not develop and make much of mindfulness directed to the body. Monks, suppose a person were to hurl a heavy round stone into a pile of wet clay. What do you think? Would that heavy round stone gain entry into that pile of wet clay? It would, they say to the Buddha. Like this, monks, Mara gains entry. Mara gains a footing in whoever does not develop and make much of mindfulness directed to the body. Mara is the Buddhist understanding of Satan. The word Mara comes from the Sanskrit root murt, which is where you get the word mortal, which means to grind down. It's actually also where you get the English word meal, hmm. which is to, to grind down life. When you eat, when you eat, you're killing. So, Mara is a killer. Mara is grasping. And the Buddha says here that when you're in the grip of something, your life is stifled. When you're in the grip of Mara, your life is being killed. Life is being killed when you're in the grip of Mara. When the Buddha sat down as a young man at the foot of a tree and started watching his breathing and practicing exactly the way he's describing here, he was visited by Mara. And if you look at the art that describes this, there's often the Buddha with a halo above him, and in the halo are painted all these troops. And the Buddha described Mara as being uh, Mara's troops, right? So troops with the intention to kill, with the intention to shut down. So you could say that the Buddha is our capacity to wake up. And Mara is our capacity to shut down. And they're always in a dialectical relationship. When you come here for the weekend, on Friday night you're excited, there's going to be a talk and lots of people and I'm going to see my friends. And then about halfway through the talk you start actually listening. <laughs> and you think, whoa, this is really, uh, this is true. This is, this is what's going on in my life right now. And then you come the next day, morning, it's so hard. Body is sore, not used to sitting still. 
not used to these postures. And then in the afternoon, you start to get a taste. Oh, I can wake up. Does everybody feel this? this oh. you, you contact your Buddha nature, which is your capacity to be awake. And every time you contact your Buddha nature, right on the heels is Mara. <laughs> when the Buddha was sitting under the tree and Mara came, in one of the stories, Mara has long arrows and shoots them right at the Buddha. And the Buddha sits there, and as the arrow comes to the Buddha, he meditates on the arrow, and they turn into flowers, and they fall down. <laughs> but there's a technique that the Buddha uses, and he describes the technique as saying to himself, Mara, I see you. And the interesting thing about it is that's the only technique he uses. So whenever the energy of shutting down starts to arise, the technique is your attitude, which is, I see you. I would take it one step further. I see you, and I won't abandon you. Yeah. Uh huh. In what way? You can see Mara as the suffering. Yes. Yeah. And then Sukha is the pain. It happens. You can't avoid it. Mm. I don't know if I'd use the terms that way. Mara is not so much the suffering. The suffering is in Mara. But Mara is just the capacity to shrink. which then causes suffering. But the important part of Mara is it's always there. And, and here's the part that I think a lot of Buddhists forget about, which is that after the Buddha's awakening, which by definition is the overcoming of Mara, the Buddha continues to get visited by Mara, which might be an outright contradiction, actually. But this is important because Mara appears to us as permanence. That's the way Mara sneaks in. Mara, Mara gets a footing by giving us the inclination to try and make things permanent. when actually Mara is really just a retreat back into the cell of a self. Can you say that again? Mm -hmm. Mara is the origin of Dukkha. The origin of Dukkha is Mara. And Mara occurs when we're trying to make things permanent. And so, it's a retreat on the part of the personality back into the cell of itself. We hem ourselves in. We freeze. Which is the opposite of Buddha, which is awakening. Mara is the closing down. In Tibet, in Tibetan, the word Buddha is translated into Tibet into Tibetan as Sangye, which means flourishing. It's beautiful. To flourish. So this is the opposite of Mara, which is to shrink. So the Buddha is the blossoming of life. Mara is the shrinking and the closing in. In the stories, isn't, uh, isn't the Buddha always welcome Mara? Yeah. Like, yeah. Sit down. Here, Mara, I see you. Then the Buddha says, suppose there was a dry, sapless piece of wood 
And a person came along and taking an upper fire stick thought, I'll make a fire. I'll produce heat. What do you think, monks? Would it be possible for that person to make a fire and produce heat by rubbing a dry sapless piece of wood with a fire stick? It's kind of a rhetorical question. Yes. Like this, Mara gains entry. Mara gains a footing in whoever does not develop and make much of mindfulness directed to the body. In other words, <coughs> mindfulness of the body creates a space that doesn't allow in Mara. It's, pr- it's a protection. So Mara... So if you think about mindfulness of the body, when we're mindful of the body, we're not caught up in narrative. Okay? So you could define Mara as the inability to transcend ideology. It's having a fixed ideology and not being able to transcend it. That's Mara. That's the opposite of awakening. Maybe I'll say a little bit more about that. So Mara blocks us. And the opposite of being blocked is having a clear space. And this is called emptiness, right? which is an emptying, which is... <coughs> Let's back up. One of the things that every single religion has in common Every religion, every spirituality has one thing in common. Do you know what it is? The one thing that every religion has in common is a path. It's a path, that there's a path. So think about a path. The word for path in Sanskrit is marga, or in... uh, China, it's Tao. Like Taoism literally means pathism. (laughs) So when you have a forest, this morning I went walking in the forest. I, I looked to the right and I saw houses everywhere. And I looked to the left and I saw trees. So I walked to the trees and there was a path called the Ice Age Path. Has anybody been there? It's so beautiful, really gorgeous. So anyways, I walked on this path. And it's a really nice path because once in a while there's wooden planks over a swamp, but mostly there's just a little bit of a clearing in the forest. So a path is a clearing. Right. It's a clearing that other people have been through. Mm-hmm. And so when we think of a path as our practice. It's, it's a path that opens up when there's an entanglement. When we're in the jungle. Remember we were talking about the jungle earlier today? So a path is a gap and it can allow purposive movement. But Mara blocks the path. Mm-hmm. So the Buddha says, suppose a person were to hurl a light ball of string against a secured door made entirely of hardwood, just a hardwood. What do you think, monks? Would that ball of string gain entry through the secured door made entirely of hardwood? No. Like this also, monks, Mara gains no entry. Mara gains no footing in whoever develops and makes much of mindfulness directed to the body. So when there's mindfulness of the body, it's hard for Mara to gain a footing. It's like throwing a ball against a door. In the second century, there was an Indian philosopher, some of you have heard of, named Nagarjuna. Um, who taught the Madhyamaka, uh, known as the Middle Way. 
And um, uh, he says, emptiness, right, which is this clearing, this clearing, emptiness is the relinquishing of opinions. Emptiness is the relinquishing of opinions. And then he called emptiness the middle path. The middle path. So on the one hand, glued to your opinions, and on the other hand, not having any thoughts. <laughs> right in the middle, and you asked this about yesterday about stories. So if one extreme is my ideology, this is how things are. The other extreme is, oh man, everything's so great. I just like, <laughs> this is really good pot. I don't really think anything about anything. And like, all these people thinking about politics, you know. It's not for me, man. I just like hanging out in Costa Rica in the wintertime, Door <laughs> County in the summertime. <laughs> you heard of these people? <laughs> uh, yeah. But Nagarjuna is saying the middle path, so again, this theme of a path is the relinquishing of opinions. It doesn't mean not having an opinion, but it means seeing our opinions as opinions, but not grasping. And then when you don't hold on to your opinion, a space opens up. Has anybody here ever been in like an argument where there's like three or four people involved? <laughs> yeah. And the only way a path appears is when at least two people relinquish their opinion and start listening. Suppose that placed on a stand was a water pot full to the brim with water so that a crow could sip from it. Suppose a person came along carrying a supply of water. What do you think, monks? Would it be possible for that person to pour water into the pot? No, they say. Like this, monks, Mara gains no entry. Mara gains no footing in whoever develops and makes much of mindfulness directed to the body. Now this is a really cool thing about the Buddha that you don't get like in the Yoga Sutra, is you really feel the person, a person speaking to different people, <coughs> probably using a different metaphor for different people to try and get another angle on the teaching. So anyways, then the Buddha ends this section on Mara, saying, if you really want to work with Mara, you stay mindful of the body when Mara appears. And Mara is the devil. Mara is a killer. Mara is Satan. Mara is uh, the inability to see the path that's right in front of you. Mara is craving. Craving shuts down the path. Now, this can also be subtle, like craving peace. I feel sometimes like uh, many of us lefties have this absurd fantasy that there's going to be some great political change and things are going to get better. Sometimes I feel like all the intellectuals are so critical of right-wing government and pipelines as the cause of our failure to really make change on the issue of climate change. You hear this all the time. But maybe the fault of not having enough traction in uh, dealing with climate change is the fault of the left. Because I think the left doesn't really believe deeply that another story is possible. 
in a way, maybe it's our fault. For those of us who feel like we've got to do something to make the earth better for young people and to deal with crazy inequality. Like, in the United States, there I don't know what the number is, but it's, it's I forgot what the statistics of how many people stop looking for work after a while. Mm-hmm. It, it feels sometimes like this country is creating a permanent underclass. Mm-hmm. But maybe it's the fault of our inability to trust that we can imagine something that's way better than this. Like, if you go to a party, you can say to someone, we should build more carbon fiber bicycles. (laughs) And people will be like, yeah, that's possible. We can really do that, you know. But if you say at a party, we we should have another kind of economy. (laughs) People are quickly like, no, 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 that's impossible. So the sign that addiction is present is when there's a lack of imagination. That's the, that's the sign of addiction, is that you can't imagine things another way. And that's Mara. Mara is the inability to imagine another world. So I feel sometimes like we've let our imagination atrophy. And we should stop blaming people for devastation in our environment or the way the school system is falling apart. And we should uh, imagine much more deeply, outside the box, what's possible. So. This is another way of thinking about Mara. Is that whenever we feel like, oh, that's not possible, Mara gains a footing. So, Buddha is our deep imagination. And maybe we should just do this even closer to home. Like, let's go home tonight and let's look at our kids from another perspective. But let's try that. And I don't know what that is. I can't tell you what it is. But let's look closer at our kids. And then, does anybody here live with somebody? (laughs) When we go home tonight, let's ask them how they're doing. And let's actually listen to what they say. And it might completely freak them out. Because <laughs> you haven't listened to anything they've said for so long. <laughs> and don't tell them, like, oh, this is a technique I'm working on. <laughs> and maybe let's not go home uh, in the same route that we always go home tonight. So if you're riding, I saw there's a lots of bicycles. Maybe when you're riding your bicycle, just ride a completely different way home tonight and maybe cook a recipe that's just completely different than the way you usually cook your liver (laughs) (laughs) you're sprouted vegetarian liver (laughs) So it's important that we look at Mara in our own hearts, resentment, this is the way it's supposed to be. And it's important that we look at Mara socially. And not buy into this idea that things are going to change because we elect another politician. (laughs) If anything disproves that, it's the food movement. The food movement has had nothing to do with electoral politics. 
Look around the country, it's amazing, isn't it? Farmers markets. I always say to people, if you want to find happy people in a city, just go to the farmer's market. Everyone, it's like such a relief. People are actually outside meeting the people who are growing the food. And then it's making people more aware of what they're eating and where it comes from. And this, this movement has really been a grassroots movement. It's not like a politician has said, we're going to put farmer's markets in this area, this area, and this area. <laughs> it hasn't happened that way. And that's really inspiring. Look at all of us in this room. So we have the capacity to reimagine our relationships and our city. And... Uh, that's what we're doing when we come here to a workshop. It looks like we're sitting around, you know, really doing self-transformation. But we're doing world transformation. There's a funny story where there was a meditation retreat in San Francisco with uh, Trungpa Rinpoche. And uh, somebody said to him, there was a couple hundred people in the room, and someone said, how is all this meditation helping the world? And he said, well, there's a couple hundred people in here for a whole weekend and no one's gotten into any trouble. <laughs> so are there any comments or questions? I imagine a lot of people feel like your father and his story, uh -huh. that we've got to give up something. Mm -hmm. So that's the hardest point, part about making change, is that, how did you say that your father said it? It's giving up, he has to give up his lifestyle. Yeah. Well, let's all look at our lifestyle and how much waste there is, mm -hmm. and how much we're buying stuff we don't need at all. And it has nothing to do with our happiness, you know? We just get into a mood and we think, God, I, I really, really need uh, another, yoga shirt. another yoga shirt, you know? <laughs> <laughs> and then when you buy something, you should buy something that's as permanent as possible. in throwaway culture. So you should get, if you're going to buy a jacket, you should wait until you have enough money and then buy a really well-made jacket. And it's going to last a really long time. And then you don't have to get nine jackets because the zipper keeps breaking. Yeah. And my jackets, that always, the zipper keeps breaking. <laughs> That's what happens in Goodwill. <laughs> yeah. And also, when you start meditating every day, this strange thing happens where you start not needing so much anymore. And when you start looking more closely at your kids and at your partner and at your friends, you stop needing them to be so different. And then you can see that contentment doesn't come from another vacation. But just like really spending time together. Plus... All this traveling, you know, uh, our grandkids, you know, they're not going to travel like how much we traveled. They're not. They're not going to be as mobile. So, we can change our lifestyles so easily. But it has to do with our attitude and our values. Back with suffering? You said there's you know, five kinds of suffering, blah, 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 blah. Yeah. And then you had said, I don't, I don't buy that, mm. that suffering is caused yeah. by craving. Yeah. And to use maybe a different term other than craving, but it doesn't really matter. Yeah. Um, I'm, I'm not catching that because everywhere I think, 
Yeah. Using the mind yeah. is where the suffering arises. Yeah. And I see the suffering as a viewpoint that I've established, which usually is pushing or pulling. Right, but what I was trying to get at is the, that's not how the Buddha defines suffering. The Buddha defines suffering by saying birth is suffering. Being born is suffering. The Buddha is saying being born is suffering and dying, you're going to suffer. You're talking about the physical experience? Everything. Experience. Psychophysical experience. Aging is suffering. If you don't believe that, try aging. <laughs> okay? Like when you're 50, it's not so bad. But like when you're 80, it hurts all the time. Think of babies and, you know, like teeth having to push through like their gums, like these little beings. Yeah. Like, God, I know. <laughs> I know. No, and even before their teeth, their poor stomach. It ha- they have to grow a stomach. It's terrible. <laughs> Who would want to ever go through that again? That's you why know? I can't yeah, I I heard this great joke by Jerry Seinfeld. Which he said something like, you know, it's really hard at the age of four and at the age of five and at the age of six being a parent and seeing your kid at the age of four and five and six. It's really good that every year only lasts a year. <laughs> So, back to suffering. There is suffering caused by craving, but the Buddha is defining suffering a little bit differently, saying it's just everything, the whole psychophysical condition is suffering. So, it's an expansion more between this like polarity of suffering and pain. Yeah. And then there's this whole gamut of. Yeah. The interconnectivity of where some suffering can be just this psychosomatic. Well, let's not make a distinction between suffering and pain. We're just, those are two words trying to define dukkha. If you make a distinction between suffering and pain, you're calling pain reality and suffering dukkha. But that's not exactly how the word's being used. Well, that's what I mean. So it's like with the the, the traditional translations of these types of things. You were separating suffering as more of the mind realm that enhances the physical yes. sensations that are inevitable. Yes, because the Buddha alive. does use the term sometimes dukkha dukkha, which is the pain of pain, hmm. Hmm. the pain of being in pain, and that's the mind adding to it. Dukkha dukkha. What about our aversion? Because like most of us, we're like dukkha 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 dukkha. <laughs> <laughs> what about our aversion to happiness and joy? Yeah, those are called psychotherapists. <laughs> I'm just kidding. But it's true. Do you know that people who get into psychotherapy and psychology tend to have much higher inclination towards depression? Which is probably great because um, we need more people who are depressed. Because most people, they get a bit depressed and they're trying so hard to not be depressed. But, like, we need people who know how to be depressed and see, like, how rich it can be uh, to be blue. But don't we have the opposite where we don't feel complete joy? We're averse to being... We don't know how to be extremely happy. Yeah, just to be happy and just to have no self in it. Just be completely happy. I had this once. (laughs) No, I've had it a few times. But one time, I was with my younger brother, Jamie. He's he's four years younger than me. Um, We went to a monastery in California called Green Gulch Farms. I don't know if anyone's been there. It's it's on a Golden Gate Bridge runs into a mountain mm-hmm. called Mount Temal Pius. I always seen Mount Pi, but they don't pronounce it like that there because they're American. <laughs> they have the weirdest pronunciations in this country. Anyways, it's so beautiful there. We climbed up the mountain and then the the clouds came in. <laughs> so we were way at the top, and the fields are there's fields and they're kind of rolling even though you're really high up. And we just started running down the field. 
Like, you know when you're a kid and you're running and your legs are kind of doing it? <laughs> and like you, but then the cloud came in, so we didn't know where we were going, and we just kept running. And then the sun came out, and our shadows were on the cloud wow. right in front of us. So I'm running towards my shadow, not knowing if a cliff was coming, and we both started laughing at the same time until we were crying. These are grown people. <laughs> running, running down a mountain, looking at our shadows. Have you ever seen your shadow in a cloud? Right, and I'd never no. seen this before. No. And around the shadow was like red, orange, yellow, green, violet, blue. Mm. Like crazy. I was so happy. <laughs> but I didn't, I wasn't happy. You see? It was just happiness. It doesn't have anything to do with me. But then what happens is then the mind comes in and goes, I'm so happy. <laughs> and then the whole thing starts to fall apart. Because I can't be happy. I think of this sometimes when I have to pee. And I say, like, I have to pee. But, like, I, the I... Never, it doesn't have to pee. <laughs> Do you know what I mean? Like the body has to pee. But like the eye, it doesn't have a system for that. <laughs> it just, that has nothing to do with me. So it's same with happiness. Like the self, the eye, the, that story, the story that we feel like is me, it can't get happy. It doesn't get happy or get sad. <laughs> you see? So this is such a good thing to look at. So you don't hold on to yourself so tight. So you're saying that it's like the chemical reaction in your brain? Like it's totally physical? Is that like... No, it's psychological. It's physical. It's so many things. It's natural. It's ecological. But even so... There's no self in the center of the whole thing. The self is just bubbling up in it for that time. So. Would you say it's bubbling up? Just for that time. Just for the time. No. So how can we feel happy and just let there be joy and not have to make it our, our joy? Huh? Like, right now, this is our sangha. This is our community. And you don't have to be like, this is my community. <laughs> <laughs> and then, in nine minutes, this whole community will disband, and we're never going to experience this again. No. We won't, we'll never have this, mo this again. And for some of you, it's going to be like, thank God. <laughs> <laughs> I am so, I'm so glad. God, I hate being in a community. So, any other questions or comments before we finish? The one thing you mentioned about um, depression and needing more people who are depressed. Yeah. Um, if there's, so can there be the equanimity with depression? Yeah. You would bring equanimity into depression by feeling what's going on without the rumination. It's so good that uh, there's uh, pharmaceuticals, I think. They save so many lives, you know, that we can uh, take a drug so that we can uh, be able to tolerate and manage, you know, these moods that we feel. And so many of these moods are just, they're not our fault. They're like, because of diet and hormones and the, and wa the water system, you know, 
Like in Los Angeles, kids are not supposed to drink the water if they're uh, like teens and under because there's so many pharmaceuticals in the water, it's messing up their hormones. They can't get that stuff out of the water, right? But anyways, even so, so I'm a big fan of pharmaceuticals, actually. The problem is, is that um, getting down is really important, especially if you're kind of hyper all the time, kind of crazy, you can't stop. Sometimes you really need, like, to be hit to stop and to look more deeply at your life, make changes, and... Uh, read poetry. We don't read much poetry when we're really happy, <coughs> except for maybe Billy Collins or something. And you're saying you can't do that without pharmaceuticals? I'm sorry, I missed the whole transition <laughs> between like, I'm a fan of pharmaceuticals, so like, sometimes you can't read poetry. So what I'm right? saying is pharmaceuticals are really good because they can help us manage these moods, you know. And at the same time, uh, we need to be able to look more clearly at these moods because they have a lot to teach us, you know. And also, meditation really works. And it can really help us also to really see the nature of our mind more clearly. So we need all these tools. Yeah. My favorite pharmaceuticals? <laughs> Do I have a link to chronic physical pain? Yeah. If you haven't experienced pain, click on this hyperlink. And you can choose leg, chest, breakup, death of mother, father. Yeah. I don't. No. Uh, but we'll record what we do in Green Bay. Good. And then it'll be on your podcast. <laughs> I just no, don't. That takes six months. <laughs> I know there's a bit of a delay, but. I have a question about your retreat. Yeah. Um, I'm not familiar. Where, where does it take place? Oh, which one? The one on June 30th to July 7th. Oh, yeah. There's an eight day silent yeah. retreat. Um, it's in a place called Batavia, New York, which mm -hmm. is halfway between Buffalo and Rochester. So you fly to Buffalo or Rochester, or you drive, or you could start walking <laughs> now. But um, we do, uh, we use a Zen form, so it looks like Zen, but we do Vipassana meditation technique. So there's lots of guided meditation, lots of instructions. There's one-on-one -on -one meetings with me, and there's a Dharma talk every day. That and the, that I give, uh -huh. and then there's also time before lunch every day for two hours to practice yoga. Uh -huh. So, for those of you who've done, you know, vipassana retreats, like they talk a lot about the body, but you don't get to move your body very much. Mm -hmm. So, yoga is a really big part of our retreats, and it's very accessible and very gentle, and um, it's also a real okay. thing. Oh. Uh, so you can choose either a dormitory or a single room, and the price reflects that. So uh, anybody who's interested in coming on a retreat, I, I really encourage you. You still have you space come. here? Yeah, there's still space for the summer retreat. For your years, do you also get the one-on-one? -on -one? Yep, wow. yep. Yeah, I work really hard. <laughs> <laughs> I'm still struggling with your feeling towards <laughs> pharmaceuticals. <laughs> like, isn't it a form of numbing to an no. extent? Yeah, it can be, of course. I have an aversion towards pharmaceuticals. Yeah. <laughs> I work with children who have autism, and we have to teach them regulation skills. And sometimes their moods are so big that, that we're, they're not able to access the ability mm -hmm. to cope. And a medication mm -hmm. can help them get to a place where they can learn. I did all that because I, I, I work with the same population. And I do too. Yeah. So, <laughs> so that's how I. They're, they're overprescribed, but they were. But they're very necessary, I think, for some. Yes. So. And most people on the autism spectrum, as adults, will tell you that. Mm -
<laughs> I, I just mentioned, I mentioned the pharmaceuticals partly because I think in the yoga and meditation world, people are so anti-meds, you know, and, and it, it can be too much to just say, you know, to be a blanket anti-meds like that. Because I've seen people get on meds and be able to really practice and then get off meds, you know. Um, and we all know the other story, so we don't have to go through the other story, which is a lifetime dependent on something, something that you might not need, really where the only person that's benefiting is the pharmaceutical company. Um, so, uh, one last comment or question, and then we'll go get some meds. <laughs> I don't know really how to phrase this, but since you were just talking about pharmaceuticals and the addiction that can come from pharmaceuticals. Yeah. What I often see is an addiction practice. Uh-huh. Mm-hmm. And, yeah. oh, I haven't practiced today. Yeah. I, you know, so could you address something towards that? Where I feel we can get really hunkered down into our practice mm-hmm. and it becomes almost, well, it does. It's an addiction. Yeah. I've never seen it. I mean, I've never seen anyone be addicted to their practice. I feel that there's people who have an ideology around practice that is misguided, which is more, I think, the problem, which is like a very strange way of telling themselves a story about what they should be doing in their practice. I think that's more the addiction. Is like, yeah, and and that tends to be when people are not studying with a teacher, who they have a close relationship with, because usually the teacher is able to point that out, and help them change the practice. And there's enough dialogue between the two of them that the practice is appropriate for the person. Um, but people can use practice in the same way people can over-exercise or overdo anything uh, as a defense. But I wouldn't call that practice. Um, so that's why I think it's important to have community and to have a teacher so that uh, that can be pointed out. But what I'm calling practice, I think it's okay to be addicted to that. Because <laughs> it's a practice of waking up. But are you talking about asana? I'm talking maybe, you know, I think a combination of both. And perhaps more asana, but also, like, this feeling, um, or what I, what I often see, is almost like a guilt that I haven't practiced today. Or if I, I, I carve out my life in such a way that I have to do such and such and such and such, or there yeah. won't be equal... At the end. Yeah. Yeah. It's just another ideology. <laughs> or if I don't take my yellow pill, there won't be happiness. If I don't practice today, yeah. there won't be. I'll be anxious. No. Yeah. Um, and when I work with students, I really hear in their voice like this feeling of almost guilt that they haven't, that they're not worthy that day because they didn't practice. Right. Yeah. So, you know. Yeah. So yeah. To me, that's not a problem with practice. It's a problem with the self story. It's a super ego problem. Right. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. So then they have to use practice to work with that.
those practices, the contemplative practices, sort of like pharmaceuticals where you can get so far with a good antidepressant, mm -hmm. but if you're combining it with somebody that you develop a relationship with mm -hmm. who's there solely to guide mm -hmm. you and help you on that mm -hmm. path of uncovering, that it goes faster. You know, it goes, you're not stuck in that suffering with no guidance. And maybe it's what you're talking about, like a teacher in that, but so my closest students are all in therapy. Whenever they have the slightest thought, you know, I should probably see someone to talk to. I say, it's essential. And I have a lot of students who've done a ton of therapy. And um, I recommend sometimes that they take a break. And that they do some other work. Mm -hmm. yes. Yeah. It's hard to end, isn't it? Let's <laughs> just keep going. No, because some people are just like, God, I'm dying. I just need to end. <laughs> Why don't we finish by chanting? Life and death are of supreme importance. Life and death are of supreme importance. Time passes swiftly and opportunity is lost. Time passes swiftly and opportunity is lost. Let us awaken. Let us awaken. 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 Do not squander your life. Do not squander your life. May all beings be happy. May all beings be happy. May all beings be healthy. May all beings be healthy. May all beings be safe and free from danger. May all beings be safe and free from danger. May all beings be free from their ancient and twisted karma. May all beings be free from their ancient and twisted karma. May all beings be free from every form of dukkha. May all beings be free from every form of dukkha. May our troops realize wisdom and compassion. May our troops realize wisdom and compassion. Thank you.